Fun and get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this Advent season, um, this anticipation of your son's uh, second coming, as well as that remembrance of the anticipation of his first coming. And as we uh, begin this little uh, class session on, um, on the Messianic prophecies in Advent, we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, for those that don't know, we are kind of basing the way we're going to do these next three weeks and then after the new year, three more weeks off of um, kind of the scope and sequence from the atrium for the, the pre-Christmas season there, and uh, which I thought was kind of neat. So we're, I don't know if we're going to be really hitting on the same stuff at the same time, but we're taking those six classes for our six classes this Wednesday. Um, we probably will not be, you know, okay, now we're just picking up back on Wednesday for a while because that's, that's not until I get another person who's going to be teaching that more or less as their main thing. But nonetheless, uh, we are going to do this mini-series here and there. So this first class is um, about uh, the Annunciation and the Messianic prophecies associated with this. And here's the really cool thing is that the readings that, that, that they have um, that the folks from the atrium said, hey, this is the stuff we want to look at for this, are actually the same readings that are the propers in um, the Annunciation. So you can find this in your prayer book, page 235. And we're going to look at this first uh, Messianic prophecy and its fulfillment um, from the Annunciation. Page 235 in your prayer book, 235, the propers for the Annunciation. I, I do want to look at the collect before we look at the prophecy and the fulfillment itself. So the collect, again, this is, these are the propers for the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the collect is, We beseech thee, O Lord, pour thy grace into our hearts, that, as we have known the incarnation of thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion we may brought into, unto glory of his resurrection through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So sometimes um, you'll hear it accused by those that are kind of um, anti-Christmas grumpy folk that, um, well, at Christmas all we ever focus on is the, is the birth. There's so much more to the story than that. Well, you'll see that we always have the whole story in, in the background, even if only part of it's in focus. And so even though during, during the Annunciation, we're going to look specifically at that message of the angel. It still has the eye, at least in the background, of the cross and resurrection. That's always a part of it. We're going to see why that matters for this particular one in just a little while. So that's the collect. Keep that in the back of your mind as we look at the readings. So we're, the, our for the epistle reading for the Annunciation is the prophecy that we focus on. And our for the epistle actually expands it to give it context beyond just a single verse. So for the epistle, Isaiah 7, beginning at verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, house of David, is it, is it, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Now here's the, here's the prophecy. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, 
Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. So there endeth the epistle. So what we have, what we have, first of all, is that prophecy of the virgin birth and kind of the, the a bit of the context around it, which was um, during when Jerusalem was besieged, um, Isaiah was sent to Ahaz, the king, and um, God was basically saying, you are going to be delivered from this particular evil, from this particular siege. So ask a sign. And Ahaz, who was not a righteous king, says, oh, I'm not going to test the Lord. Um, we might call that in today's parlance a bit of a humble brag. It's not real humility on his part. It's more of an expression of his unbelief. You know, Ahaz is, Ahaz is pretending to be humble before the Lord, but in reality, he just doesn't believe the Lord's going to do anything, so he's blowing off the prophet, right? And Isaiah, and Isaiah says, okay, so what? You're, gonna, you're, 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 you're wearying men, but now you're also going to weary God also. You know, you're, you're getting on everybody's last nerve, including God's. <laughs> so don't do that. And so he gives them the prophecy of the virgin birth. Um, what we find is that this idea of the virgin birth is huge for uh, Christian theology. This is not a minor issue. So keep that in your back of the mind, and we're going to look at the fulfillment from Luke 1, 26, page 236 in your prayer book, or in your Bibles, Luke 1, beginning at verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto, the, unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast, her mind, in, cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his kingdom, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? A little euphemism there, right? Right? Um, and the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So, um, again, the virgin birth is very important for Christian theology. Um, you'll find it in, in, in all of our creeds, all of our major creeds. Uh, we do find it, I believe, in the 39 Articles. Um, in the Book of Homilies, and the homily on the Nativity, um, it talks about it there. And Isaiah did prophesy that, she was to be, that he was to be born of a virgin. And it, in the margin, it has um, the, the quote there uh, that, that we just read from Isaiah. So this is very, very important to Christian theology. And the reason for that is that it shows um, the divine origin of, of, of Jesus the man. It's, he's not just a regular man, but he is the God-man born of the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary. It should come as no surprise then that this is always the first thing assaulted by the enemies of the faith. 
Um, from the very beginning, you have, you see this even in the Gospels, his enemies among uh, the Pharisees and the, and the Jewish leaders. What did they say? Oh, um, we know where uh, Abraham came from. We don't know where you came from. You know, we know about your family life, <coughs> whose father is, you know, who's your father, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that, you know, everybody knew that, that Mary and Joseph were not married when he was, uh, when he was born or when he was, when he was conceived. And so there was this, um, from the very beginning, this idea in the, in the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders that he was, um, that he was a bastard son of probably some pagan and Mary being loose, even though her virtue was well known to everybody, right? Um, you see the same thing happening uh, among, you know, fast forward to um, any time um, kind of in the more liberal theological circles, the first thing they're going to do is attack the virgin birth. I, I can hear in my head now uh, John Shelby Spong, an Episcopal bishop who should have been deposed ages ago but never was, um, you know, in, inter in an interview, I just don't believe a virgin, you know, you, a virgin can give birth, you know, with his, uh, with his very thick southern accent. Um, you know, and that, that kind of thing is always at the forefront of the did God really say when it comes to, um, to, to attacking the faith. So the virgin birth is, is, is very, very important because it does show that divine nature. Folks like kind of modern-day atheists, um, you know, it, it, when you're looking at kind of ancient attacks, like and you do see this even in the Talmud, um, it, how, if, if, you're a, if you're a heavy metal fan, you might know the, the band Pantera. Anybody, anybody know Pantera? Okay, we, we, we got some heathens here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was totally a headbanger in high school myself. Um, the, the, they got their name from... Um, in, the, in the Jewish legends, the name of the Roman soldier who supposedly was Jesus' real father. You know, their name is directly blasphemous, intentionally so. You know, that, that, that's a, that, that, so you, saw, you, you find it on one side trying to discredit the claims of Christianity. And when it comes to kind of your, liberal, your liberals like Bishop Spong, it's, well, you know, these simple people back then didn't understand that virgins don't give birth. Really? You, I mean, yeah, I mean, these these are agrarian people. Now, you I mean they deal with birth a lot more than we moderns do, you know, because they all had animals. <laughs> you know, everybody knows and everybody knew that dead men don't get up out of the grave. Everybody knew that virgins don't conceive. I mean, everybody has always known that. Uh, for Christianity to claim that was part of that, as Saint Paul said. Our teaching, our preaching is foolishness to the Greeks. You know, it's a stumbling block to the Jews because it says, um, oh, the way that you're trying to get to God is not the way you're supposed to get to God. And it's foolishness to the Greeks because we're making these claims that everybody knows are totally irrational and silly. Unless they're true, right? Unless they're true. So that's, that's the theological importance of the virgin birth. Um, there are a couple of, of linguistic issues we, need, we do need to be aware of. You will find that people, right, people rightly point out that the word in our um, King James translation here um, that in, in Isaiah used for virgin does not necessarily translate as so in Hebrew. 
In Hebrew, there are two words that could be used. Um, one indicates specifically a young woman of marriageable age, and the implication is that she would be a virgin. It's always implied. The other one specifically is a virgin. It's that first one that is used by Isaiah. Uh, so there are those that say, well, um, Matthew and Luke were totally misreading the prophecy. Well, guess who else must have misread the prophecy? All the rabbis who translated into Greek for the Septuagint, right? You know, way before Jesus came. Um, most Christian scholars will say part of the reason for that is we do have a double um, application of the prophecy going on. Um, you very rarely, and this is a little difficult for a lot of Christians to get because we've been taught to kind of cherry pick the Old Testament for, for Messianic prophecies. Um, that's, that's not the best way to do things. We do want to see the Old Testament as always having its fulfillment in Jesus, but, but we don't want to pretend there's no context to these things. In the historical context, um, it, it does appear when you read the rest of Isaiah chapter 7 that there was an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in um, the prophet gets married and, her, and, and, and his wife has a son, and before that son is, is old enough to tell right and wrong, Israel is delivered. But, again, as, as, as soon after that intertestamental period, we're talking the time of like 300 B.C., the Jewish translators recognize there's a messianic prophecy going on here. It was always recognized until Christianity claimed it was fulfilled that this was a messianic prophecy in addition to that immediate fulfillment. Does that, does that make sense or is that kind of something that's just kind of, kind of blown your mind? Most, most all the time when we're dealing with prophecy in the Old Testament, most of the time there is going to be um, more than one level of, of fulfillment, more than one level of interpretation. There's an immediate fulfillment oftentimes, and then there's a future application, a future fulfillment that's pointing to Christ. And here's the reason why we end up having both of those. Um, Ahaz is long dead by the time Jesus comes around, right? What does this prophecy have to do with Ahaz's situation if it's only a messianic prophecy? Well, ultimately, it has a lot to do, right? Because of being in the line of the Jewish people, of the Messiah, um, being of the house of David and all that sort of thing. But in terms of what the context of the chapter is, their deliverance from Assyria, that's just not, that's just, you know, okay, so a Messiah is going to come in 700 years. Whoop-de-doo, I'm still going to get crushed by Assyria, Right? So you do end up oftentimes seeing that immediate fulfillment because the Lord is dealing with a particular issue right then as well. But what did Jesus say about Moses and the prophets? They're all about me. There's a context beyond the context. There's a fulfillment beyond that immediate fulfillment. Um, and, and, that, and, and that's not just we as Christians trying to wedge what we, what we read in the New Testament into the Old Testament. That's not what that's about. But, but, 
That's a way that the ancient people always understood their holy text, that it's not just about what's going on right now, but there's something bigger because God is in control. The reason why we have troubles with that today is we've been taught not to look that way. When, when, I, was in, when I was doing my master's degree, when I was doing my hermeneutics class, my biblical interpretation class, basically what my professor indicated is that the way that the New Testament authors treated the Old Testament is only good because they happen to be the New Testament authors and thus we know the Holy Spirit inspired them. You know, but that was actually very, I mean, it, it's really not responsible use of the text. But because the whole, they get a pass because the Holy Spirit was inspiring them. Why do we say that? Well, because they're in the New Testament, we have to say that, right? And it's not that my professors didn't believe that. I mean, they were very orthodox guys. But there was this very cut and dry approach to, to handling the text that has been the main thing for at least a good 200, 150, 200 years um, in theologically orthodox Christianity, which said um, we have to look at just the historical issues and the grammatical issues. Anything else bringing in there is, is being irresponsible with the text. The ancients never saw it like that. They, they, they would generally see at least, um, for, for the Christian ancients, at least a fourfold way of approaching the scripture. The fathers tended to see, okay, here's our literal, our absolute literal meaning. This is the historical gram grammatical meaning, and that's the first thing we need to look at. But there's going to be a, um, there's going to be an allegorical meaning, and it's not allegorical where we get to decide whatever the heck we want it to mean, but there's a bigger allegorical meaning that points to the big picture of scripture. What does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about the church? What does this tell me about salvation? Right? There's going to be another, another sense that is going to be this, okay, we can, we, can, we can apply it in certain ways to our specific situation today without being irresponsible. You know, so an applicational or, or a, um, almost a homiletical approach. And then there's usually one that relates to kind of big end times issues as well that they'll see. There's something that points to the end of the end of the end. That's the way the fathers generally saw it. The, um, the, the, the rabbis did something very similar. The rabbis would say, okay, we've got the Peshat, which is that grammatical, historical, literal reading. We've got the Drash, which is a almost um, uh, a homiletic application. We've got the Remetz. Oh, that's where scripture talks to scripture. It's a hint of something else going on. We can see if, if David's being talked about over here and David's being talked about over here, these passages in God's providence must be talking to each other. That's kind of that allegorical way that the church fathers would have seen it. And then there's, then there's the uh, more mystical reading, which we don't need to really worry about because uh, it's a little odd. But we do see some of the same way that the, the rabbis were doing that in the ancient world. Some of the church fathers did some of that too. So this, this very cut and dry way of approaching the text is not the way that it was done until, you know, when we're looking at big picture history last week. So um, that, that doesn't give us, again, that doesn't give us an excuse just to see whatever we want in the text. There are, there are responsible ways of doing that, such as if we see something in the New Testament referencing something in the Old Testament, okay, there's something going on there. But, but that also means we don't just cherry pick a verse out, pull it out of context and, and say this is, this is the only thing that means, right? The context matters as well. Okay, questions about any of that so far? Okay. Let's talk about um, the Annunciation itself. 
So um, March 25, anything um, interesting to you about March 25? Nine months later is December 25. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, you will hear sometimes people talk about, um, well, Chris, the December 25th date was just the, uh, the early church adapting pagan holidays for December and wedging the, the Christmas story in there. Um, it actually appears it was the other way around. All of those December related, like Sol Invictus and that sort of thing, Saturnalia, all those post-date Christianity, actually. The Christians were already celebrating Christmas and the pagans were trying to get it back. Um, so, so that's what we actually have is an interesting old, old belief. Um, in much of the ancient world, both Jewish and, and pagan world, in, in, in around the time of the first century, it was commonly believed that a righteous man dies on the day he was conceived or the day that he was born. And so doing the math, now the calendars are always a little weird because um, different people have different calendars. Our modern Gregorian calendar is a correction of an older calendar, the Julian calendar. That's why the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, many of them celebrate Christmas later than we do. Their, their dates don't quite match up. We adapted, they did not. Um, incidentally, a lot of the Protestant nations were um, slow to adapt the Gregorian calendar too. Uh, you'll find in um, the Appalachian region of, of, of the United States, there were some folks that were using the, quote, old calendar as recently as, like, the 18th century, 19th century in some cases, because um, a lot of the, the really, like, hardcore anti-papist Protestants thought the Gregorian calendar was a Roman plot. <laughs> and so and you kind of had a holdout of that uh, from the Scotch-Irish in the Appalachian region um, for, for much later than the rest of the, rest of the New World. Uh, but anyway, the, um, doing the math, somebody at some time figured that, the, that, that Good Friday, um, the year that Jesus died, Good Friday 33 AD, thereabouts, uh, was March 25. And so they said, well, it, or again, or thereabouts. <laughs> these, these things, you know, when we're dealing with ancient calendars, there's always a little bit of wiggle room. So March 25 or thereabouts was when Jesus died. And so that's when they started celebrating the Annunciation. And December 25th being nine months later was the logical um, extension of that. Uh, St. John Baptist Day which is, what, six months before that, um, on June 24. That's not right. Three months, whatever. The, anyway, the, all those days kind of, kind of worked out. Um, my, my, my math is, is bad on that. But the Annunciation was kind of the linchpin for deciding the, the church calendar. Um, so that's why that's why it is it is done that way. Um, so yeah, and it for us as Anglicans, when we started cleaning up the calendar at the time of the Reformation, um, two Marian feasts were retained in our calendar, and those are the Annunciation on on March twenty five, and then the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary on um, Candlemas on um, February second, when uh, Jesus is um, 
yeah, when, when, when uh, he's presented in the temple and, and uh, Mary's ritual purification is over. The rest of the, the Marian feasts from uh, the medieval period were jettisoned from our calendar, although in more modern Anglican calendars, some of them have crept back in. Uh, but for, for us, um, and as using the old prayer books, um, those are the only two that were left. In um, medieval England, in parts of England, they considered March 25th, uh, they called it Lady Day, uh, because that was, you know, one of the, the chief feasts of Our Lady sort of thing, was um, in, in many cases the start of the year, the way many of them thought. And there wasn't really universal deciding on when, when everybody started, but uh, that was a very important day in medieval English culture. And it continued to be in certain kind of civil reckoning even after the Reformation for a very long time. All right, uh, questions, comments about any of that so far? We got about five minutes, so we'll, uh, we'll throw out questions and then we could possibly talk some more if, if there are none. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, the reason why this is the first of these weeks that we'll be, that we'll be discussing is because the, the angel announcing the coming of the Lord and his conception really does begin the start of, uh, of our Lord's life, the start of that New Testament life. Everything else that we read in Luke with Zechariah and the temple and all that other sort of thing really ends up being something of a prologue. And so as we prepare for Christmas, this really is the logical place to start. Um, next week, we're going to look at the visitation, which is hinted at um, in this passage. And we do see the visitation um, coming up next in Luke's gospel. And again, that's one that we don't have in our calendar, um, a specific feast day for, but we will see there are very important things related to the visitation, both in ours, but we'll also look at some of the, uh, the way it is in the newer calendar. Um, yeah. Any, any, yes. So I was thinking about, you know, we're confirmed when we receive the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so, so, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, what, what we see is that it, throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit will come upon individuals at, at specific times. Um, but we don't have this constant indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, I can't recall any of the prophets that do have a constant indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We certainly don't have it on, on all of God's people. Um, probably the closest we would get to that may be Moses. And um, there's this scene where a bunch of folks in the camp are prophesying. And I think Joshua goes up to Moses and says, I, 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 I don't have the address off the top of my head, but he says, oh, hey, look, you know, these people are on the camp prophesying. What do you want me to do about it? And Moses's answer is basically, I wish everybody in, of God's people could be prophets. Everybody, I wish that the Holy Spirit was on everybody. And what we have is that at, at Pentecost, we do have the Holy Spirit indwelling um, everyone who is a Christian. Um, and, and, and it should, you know, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, or actually, I guess at this point, it's many weeks ago when we were talking about confirmation. Um, don't think of it as if you did not have the Holy Spirit until your confirmation. That's not the way that goes. 
um, in confirmation, we're praying for a strengthening of those gifts of the Holy Spirit. But if you're a baptized Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. I mean, he, he's the one who regenerates you. He's the one who's, who's, who works that salvation. He's the one who's working in the sacraments. Um, and at confirmation, we're basically praying for the strengthening of those gifts as the Christian basically steps up to the plate to take responsibility uh, for their walk with the Lord to confirm those baptismal vows. Um, because again, confirmation really rises up in that context of children um, being raised in the faith and needing to have a come of, coming of age. Now we have that for adults a lot of times right now, but that's because we're coming from other traditions and that confirmation is almost um, really a way of entering into this particular visible church, into that fellowship with the bishop and, uh, and by extension, you know, the, the, that, that apostolic succession through the bishops. Um, so that, that's part of why, that's, that, why we do that with adults. Even, but, but the main purpose for confirmation is um, praying for the strengthening of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in those who are stepping up to the plate and taking that responsibility on themselves, for themselves. Not that the community is excluded at all. I mean, the community is always part of that, but... Um, it is taking that responsibility. Okay, I think I'll go ahead and let us go for now. And um, I will see you all, I believe, in Compline today.